Uh, scripture reading this morning will be from John 1.14 and Matthew 5.13 through 16. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to the, all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Good morning. Good to have everybody out today. Uh, we've got a good, good number of visitors here, and we are, of course, as we say over and over, really appreciative, sincerely appreciative to have you uh, present with us today. As we continue our church's current focus on outreach, on mission, on being a sent people, uh, as we are, are putting it, coming from some of the statements in the Gospel of John, we turn now today to a text from the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount is the longest uh, continuous teaching of Jesus that we have recorded. It's chapter 5, 6, and 7 in the Gospel of Matthew. And it's very important. Uh, I think one could argue disproportionately important. Even though it is a larger chunk of text, it really crystallizes a lot of the teachings and emphases of Jesus. It's been called the Constitution of Kingdom Living because the word kingdom appears over and over. He's talking about his rule over our lives as, ki as king and what what people who are citizens in his kingdom should look like, what they should live like, um, how they should be, and so on. And while outreach certainly involves what we might say to people, Jesus' words here in Matthew chapter 5 um, uh, are, are words that focus um, our attention elsewhere. Um, not really on what we're saying, but on other things. Um, how we might expound the gospel in other ways. Jesus calls his people to be salt of the earth. You are salt of the earth. Um, you are light of the world, Matthew 5, 13 and 16, here at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And these metaphors of salt and light, as we're going to see, do not focus as much on um, our preaching, our teaching, uh, as they do on our being and our doing. In fact, I'm going to kind of argue in this lesson today and in the little short series that, th that it initiates, a little mini-series of sermons, that much of our preaching occurs by being and by doing. That is a form of preaching, he's going to say here. And, and he, he will be echoed um, by statements in, in Peter, Peter's writings and Paul's writings. We'll look at a couple of those uh, today intermittently with the statement of Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount. Centuries after Jesus, um, Francis of Assisi in northern Italy was reported to have said, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words. And today we're going to begin talking about um, this idea which I think many New Testament texts actually teach. Old Testament texts do as well, as we'll see. So we're going to talk to, uh, entitle this little series, The Preaching of Practice and Presence. The Preaching of Practice and Presence. How do we preach by being present in the lives of people 
around us? How do we preach by practicing certain things? People say, practice what you preach. Um, well, practice is a kind of, of preaching. And so that's what we're going to talk about in these lessons. And we'll, we'll today introduce just the central concept, central notion of these lessons that runs throughout all of them. And then in some subsequent lessons, Lord willing, we're going to apply uh, this concept to different aspects of our discipleship. I want to begin then by looking at Christ's statement uh, that we are the light of the world, we are the salt of the earth, that disciples of Jesus, followers of Jesus, are nothing less than the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And I, I, I want us to, first of all, just consider how truly shocking this statement is. If we really start thinking about it in context, He's speaking to a little group of nondescript Galilean fishermen. These are not people who have a giant pedigree you know, behind them. Um, they're, they're just ordinary people who appear to us getting out of a boat. right? Th these, are, these are workers. These are normal people. These are people that were not famous, in, even in their own neck of the woods, much less throughout the Roman Empire. Jesus doesn't say that Caesar and his military is the light of the world, you know, the, the earth's hope. He doesn't say that some philosopher, some sage with a school of disciples in Athens, you know, is that. He says that his ordinary followers, common people who decide to follow him, are the light of the world and they are the salt of the earth. Another thing that makes this interesting that we'd have to look at the original Greek, you know, the New Testament originally was written in, in Koine Greek, um, an ancestor of modern Greek, and that was the, the, the lingua franca of that part of the world, and so that's the language that Jesus, uh, or at least the, I don't, we don't, he probably used Aramaic, but um, the, the New Testament documents are all written in Koine Greek, the language of, you know, loading docks and ships and business transactions, just ordinary daily language of the people of that part of the Roman Empire. And if you've ever looked at Greek or maybe, how many of you have studied Spanish even for like 10 minutes in high school and you weren't listening? That is counts. You'll, you'll get this point. A lot of us have. Um, I took a year of it and don't remember a thing because I was goofing off, you know. I wish I would have taken 10 years of it. But... Um, Koine Greek is a language that's, um, it's called a pro-drop language, meaning you often drop certain pronouns because they're implied by something else in the language, in this case, verbs. So Greek verbs have an ending that changes based on the pronoun, you know, for that verb. Um, Spanish does that, if I remember right, right? You don't have to say, yo quiero, you can say, quiero. The yo, I, is implied by the o on the end of the verb. Am I right about that? It's a little rusty, but several languages do that. English doesn't. Um, a lot of Northern European languages don't. German doesn't, I don't know if I recall. But Greek does. Um, Russian does. Spanish does. And so here's what he really says. All he would have had to say, if he's trying to say, you're the light of the world, the salt of the earth is, the verb, este, light of the world, este, that implies the, it's actually y'all, not you, it's ye, if you use the old King James, it's a plural you here. So he's saying to the disciples and to us and anybody who would follow him, you're the light of the world. But here's what's interesting. He does put the pronoun for, for y'all in there, for ye, for you, plural. That's the word humes, 
when you do that in Koine Greek, and I think this is the case in Spanish, and it's a way of emphasizing the you. I'm not talking about, you know, you're, hey, you're the light. You're the light of the world. I'm saying you are the light of the world. And you, you put that pronoun, it's redundant in this language to do that. You do it when you're trying to emphasize something. So his point really is saying y'all and y'all only are the light of the world. Like, you're it. Y'all and y'all only are the salt of the earth. You little motley group of nondescript fishermen who follow me are actually the hope of the entire world. That's, that's shocking. That's a remarkable thing to say. And let's try to get our mind around that point before we move on. That Jesus is saying to folks like Peter, this is the same Peter uh, that, that uh, Michael was referring to in his Lord's Supper message who, you know, in the space of a few hours can chop somebody's ear off with a sword to defend Jesus and then deny he ever knew Jesus with some expletives thrown in for good measure. Hashtag light of the world. Right? That's the light of the world? Really? Then the world's in trouble. But it isn't in trouble. And, and that really is making the point I want to make that our function in the world is this remarkable ability through the power of God to be what brings enlightenment and flavor and hope against ruin. Our function in the world is the same as Christ's. You may have wondered, why did, why did Monty have Don read John 1.14? Well, I want you to notice this. He says, you're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world. And by living in this way, we can give glory. If we let our light shine before others, we actually bring glory to God, to the Father in heaven. And that's what John 1.14 says Jesus' job was. Why did the Word, the eternal Word, Jesus, become flesh? Why was He incarnated and take the, uh, the form of a human being and walk on the earth? Basically, so that we humans might see the glory of God. Jesus was revealing, by just being here, God. God's glory could be seen in this person called Jesus. That's exactly what we're told our job is. He's the light of the world. He's called that too in John 1, just a few verses later. We are light, and as our light shines, we give glory to God. We have the same power Jesus did in a sense. That makes sense since we're called His hands and feet. We're His body, according to Apostle Paul. We're connected. We're part of Jesus if we're Christians. So we have this remarkable ability to cast glory, the glory that is rightfully our Father in heavens, back on Him in some fashion. That's what we want to explore in these lessons. And that's an astounding thing to say. How is it that the world can come to see God's glory through, through little old us? And really, this juxtaposition of... You can see something else here I want, I want to bring out. It brings up, actually, the, the Old Testament verse that we started today, and I did not plan that, I did not consult with Greg or Daniel and Randy about the Exodus 19 verse, but that's what we're going to be talking about in just a second. No kidding. This it happens about every week. It's actually amazing um, to me. Uh, but notice the, the juxtaposition here. He's talking about, on the one hand, the earth and the world. Pretty dark place, right? You think any Ukrainians right now think the earth's pretty dark? All of Europe, the world? I'm having trouble. Honestly, it's really disturbing to me. And I, I kind of want to just not look, you know, at news, but I kind of feel like I need to. Like that's, I feel like that's copping out or something, but I'm praying a lot right now about that. It's very concerning and uh, uh, sad, 
I know, I know God's in control, but God also made people who are volitional agents who get to choose things. Um, so I'm still praying that there'll be a change of heart uh, or something. Anyway, the earth and the world are dark, a dark place because of sin, because of human sin. And yet it's juxtaposed with the Father who is in heaven. And in the middle, kind of running, uh, kind of a connection between the two is, is the disciples. You and you only are the light of the world. You and you only are the salt of the earth. And what that brings up is this biblical notion of priesthood. Priests in the Bible are, and priests in most religious cultures, are bridges between the divine and the human, between heaven and earth, between God or the gods, as the case may be, and the people who are supposed to need them, right? This is a very old idea that goes back to Exodus 19, at least. It actually goes back beyond that, Melchizedek and people like that. But in Exodus 19, in this seminal passage, where Israel has been born on eagle's wings, liberated from slavery, from Egyptian slavery, and, and brought out to meet God in the wilderness, and they're going to be given this covenant. The Ten Commandments are you know, kind of the distillation of that in many ways in Exodus 20. But before that, he says, I'm the God who brought you up out of Egypt, and I brought you to myself. I freed you from Egypt and brought you to myself. Why? You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagle's wings, brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. Peter, in 1 Peter 2, is going to say this to Christians. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. In Revelation 1.9, the churches of Asia, Christians, are called a kingdom of priests. Several times, Christians are called what Israel was called. Why? Because God is using His people, whether it was Old Testament Israel or the New Testament church, to be the priests, the bridge, to point people to God, to reflect God back to the people, to show people God's glory. We are that bridge. He's calling us to that. Another way of putting that is to say that we are light. And it's interesting that Peter, in 1 Peter 2, says, you're a royal priesthood, but then says, you're a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him, that is God who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Priests reveal the light of God to a dark world, to people who desperately need Him. And so this passage harks back not only to the, to the Old Testament intention that God had for the Jews as a light to the nations, a light to the Gentiles, to the world, but it also harks back to what Peter himself would have heard Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount. Look at him square in the face and say, you're part of the light of the world. You disciples are what ancient Israel was. You're my light to the world, my light to the nations. And that's what we're called to be as well. And it raises the question, I think a pretty obvious question, if we're honest people, with any degree of humility. How could people like Peter, how could people like ourselves, be a priesthood? Isn't that kind of shocking? How can we reflect God's glorious light to a dark world when we ourselves are tainted by our own darkness? And so one thing I don't want you to get from these lessons is this call to holiness is a, uh, that we're supposed to like use that to sort of bolster a myth of our perfection. That's one of the most fundamentally erroneous, theologically erroneous, unbiblical ideas you could possibly put forward. That, that we will get there and, uh, and have this record that's perfect. Come join us, we got it figured out. 
Because the Bible blows that up about 100,000 times. Starts there, really. Blessed are the poor in spirit. <laughs> That's the first words of the Sermon on the Mount. I can work with you if you know you're in spiritual poverty. If you think you got it together, I can't really work. He didn't even address those people. Right? So the point is not that we're going to have this ability to arrive at perfection. Um, and you can quibble over my word ability all you want. I'm just saying the Bible starts there. I and mean, it kind of becomes a, a, a conversation about uh, minutia and, and semantics, in my opinion. God tells us we won't arrive on our own. So whatever word you want to use for that is fine with me. Um, as long as we accept that point. But the point is, Peter's going to say this. Um, man, this thing is j jumping and delaying and all sorts of stuff. Um, he, he says after verse 9, we're called out of darkness into a marvelous light, and we're this royal priesthood. Look where it came from. It didn't come from our own internal merit or our, our, our religious performance being so good. He doesn't give us that as a reward because we're so good. He says, no, you were once not a people. Now you are God's people. How? On what basis? but you have received mercy. You didn't have mercy, God gave you mercy, now you're his people. He made you what you are. He is making you now into what, you, uh, what he wants you to be. And Paul makes a similar point about the, the call uh, to, to live in such a way and to be among people in such a way that when the nations see us as his saints, his chosen ones, his called ones, God injects himself, has, has injected himself into us through Christ. And he says, Christ is in you, and that is the hope of glory. There's that word glory again. God's glory is being revealed through his people because of what he's done for them. One click equals five advancements today. I have no idea why. I'm going forward and backward and forward and backward. Uh, I became a minister to make the, world, uh, the word of God fully known, Paul writes. So he's talking about evangelism, making the word of God known. He says, this mystery was something hidden for ages and generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. That's Christians. To them, God chose to make known how great among the nations. There's that idea again, light among the nations. Are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is what? Christ in you. That's the hope of glory. So we're walking around with Christ in us, and God's glory is just coming out of our pores. And the nations see that. And that's preaching, he says. That's making known the word. That's the basic idea. You can see it in Paul. You can see it in Peter. And it starts with Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. actually starts with Israel back in Exodus 19. But God's glory will not be revealed to the nations, to the world around us. We will abdicate our role as his priests unless we are also present in the world. We've got to be present in the world. Now this in some ways is a point that kind of is like, uh, it's such a duh point that I, it, it, it should be so obvious, but I think sometimes the obvious stuff, we, we look over because it's obvious. You know, Stephen was a football coach. I bet you he, he didn't finish emphasizing blocking and tackling with the first practice. You know, you guys know this is football, right? So we're going to block and tackle. Okay, good. Let's, let's start drawing stuff on, on a board. Let's start drawing plays, you know, right? Do you ever have to reemphasize blocking and tackling fundamentals? Like every minute, every detail, how you come off the line, how your, your pad level, your hand, you, I mean, stuff that we wouldn't even notice. That armchair quarterbacks, well, it's about plays, right? Nexus, nose. Yeah, like a thousand years into it, maybe. 
the obvious stuff is sometimes the stuff we take for granted and we're not good at. Are we present? Let's talk about this for a minute. Isn't it true that salt and light must be present in their respective surroundings or environments to have the effects of salt and light? I don't want to make too much of this point, but it kind of goes without saying, in my view, that if salt is going to do its job, it's going to make contact with the meat or the dish. It can't just stay in the little shaker. Isn't that a cool little salt shaker? Yes, in case you didn't realize. You don't have to waste some first. You know. Um, it's got to be, it's got to be present in whatever it's trying to have an effect on. Light's the same way. For light to have the desired effect, it has to be present. It has to enter into the darkness. Um, when I was like a young adult and older teenager, I, I several times went over to the Ozarks, which is two or three hours west of where I grew up. I grew up along the Mississippi River, it was real flat and swampy and hot and mosquito-y. The Ozarks were nice because they're kind of like Appalachia, a little bit, not, not quite as dramatic, but poor man's Appalachia, I guess. And we would take canoes, me and my buddies, and go canoe camping and fish for smallmouth bass, and it was awesome. You know, very wilderness type, type place. And there would be these, the Ozarks are all limestone, so they're very porous. There are caves everywhere. Um, and we would kind of amble up these cliff faces and go in these little openings that would become these elaborate caves, a little creepy. Um, there weren't guides there, you're just doing it. And of course, we had little, we had little headlamps for that, or you know, little uh, flashlights or something. But if you've ever been in a cave and had the lights turn off, it, or lost your flashlight, or forgot to bring one, or the batteries go out, and you've made several choices, you know, in the, the, about direction as you're in there, you've, you, you, where am I? It's not gonna help very much if somebody tells you, well, you know what, there's an REI 150 miles from here who's got the most, aisle nine is loaded with spelunking lamps and flashlights. Walmart's loads of them, 200 miles from here. That's, there may, not, may as well not be light if it's not present in the darkness. Dumb point, right? Except for it's not because we aren't always present in the world. We find a thousand ways to isolate ourselves. And Matthew chapter 5 verse 15 says, nor do people to state the obvious, light a lamp and put it under a basket. Why light it? They put it on a stand. It's, it's entering the darkness. It's penetrating and piercing the darkness. And it gives light to all the house. In the same way, he says, let your light shine before others. So we can't live our lives as Christians in some protective bubble, however tempting that might be. The culture's bad. People don't like Christians anymore. Roman Empire. Some classicists say that our present world is more like, there's never been a century more like the first century than now. Right? I don't know. I'm not a classicist, but I, I don't think that's much of an argument to say the world's gotten really bad, so we need to get in a bubble. The world was bad then. It was the fullness of times. That's when Jesus entered it, according to Galatians 5. He called it the full, the times are ready. It needs us more. Note in Paul's statement to the Colossian church, he says to them, to saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles or the nations are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The hope of glory becomes evident to the nations or the Gentiles only as they see Christ in us. They're not going to see Christ in us if they don't see us. Right? If our Christianity, something happens in a church building a couple times a week, 
And then in the, in the world, it has no real relevance. We don't talk about it. We tend to hang out only with our kind of people, uh, whatever that means. And we're just not like the light in the darkness or the salt going in to the food. First Peter 2, he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. He didn't say leave the pagan Gentiles, they're awful. No, you're among them. Watch your conduct. Keep it honorable. They're going to notice this. We're salt. Are we anywhere near the food? So I want to pause for a minute to ask this question. And we're going to be posing this question this year as we emphasize being a sent people. This is kind of a challenge to, to you and to me. In what ways am I being intentional about connecting with my neighbors? I'm to love the least of these who are the brethren of Jesus. That's our New Testament passage. I'm to be a priest for God, like ancient Israel was supposed to be a priest, connecting God to the world. Well, if I'm going to be a bridge, I've got to connect on the other bank. Not just the God bank, but the people bank. Are we connected or is it a bridge going off into the air on that side? Circling back on itself. That's not a bridge. That's not going to connect anybody to the Lord. And to follow through with this, the salt analogy, what am I doing to be present in the food? Be present in the lives of the people who don't know Jesus yet, who need still to grasp His glory. So there you go. There's the food. Sometimes the church is like, you see the salt shaker? If you can't see it, that kind of makes my point. It's way up on the left. What about your life in light of this image? How connected are you? How much are you in the food? Serious question to think about. We've got to be present. But it goes beyond our mere presence. It's also about our practice. We not only need to be present in the world, we need to be practicing the ways of God, the ways of Jesus before the world, before the watching eyes of the world. And this is so clear in Jesus' statement here in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, verse 13, he says, You are the salt of the earth. Salt was used in the ancient world, as it is in lots of the world today, to make food better, to make it taste better, to make it more palatable, but also to preserve it, right? To keep it from going bad. You don't have electric refrigeration, and so it's this way to, to keep it from, from, from ruining. And we're salt because Jesus is using his followers to make the world better and also to preserve it. World's getting bad. Yeah, it's, it's going to actually rot. It's rotting. It's putrefying. Can you imagine how a holy God looks at the world that he called good? But he didn't leave it behind. He came into it. So we've got to be present, but we also have to make sure we're not losing the qualities of salt. What if, we what if salt lost its saltness? You could be present in the world, but if you're not conducting your life any differently from the world, then you've kind of lost the characteristics of salt and it doesn't really matter. It's like white powder that has no salt flavor. It's just something else, something inert. It does nothing. What good are we to the world if that's the case? Verse 13, he says, if the salt has lost its taste, or your version may say saltness, how shall its saltness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. 
not in the way that he means here. I, I, I thought about, I don't like the translation saltiness because a lot of times we say, man, they're really salty. Meaning what? Not nice, got an edge to them. Um, I don't think it could be too much like Jesus. That's what the salt in, in analogy here is. So losing, losing the characteristics of salt is what we've got to avoid because then, he's, as he says, it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled. I'm sorry, say it again. Do we have the tendency sometimes of punching our leg up in the high beams? Sometimes by being too much light, we're drawing unnecessary attention to yourself. And that's not good. Sure. So the, there's all kinds of ways metaphors can be used, right? Analogies can be used, and, and you've got to be careful to keep them in the context. So, yeah, you can start saying, he's a light, he thinks he's a star. You know, star of his own show or something like that. And, and so the spotlights, that's, he's not talking about any of that, though, here. He's talking about, are we being the light that helps the darkness? Are we being the salt that keeps the world from being ruined? Gives it taste where it would be otherwise be repulsive and repugnant to the Lord. Um, so great questions and something, uh, something for us to really think about. Same, same thing with light. Uh, same point could be made here. You're the light of the world. Let your light shine before others so they may see your, here it is, good works. This is what I mean by practicing. We have to be, be present, but we have to have the characteristic of salt or the characteristic of light. It Light shines. All right? Or the Father won't be attributed the glory that is due His name. And that's what we want for the nations around us, for the Gentiles, for the world. All right? And Peter says the same thing. Our calling is to be light, and that means a new kind of conduct. He says, I've called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Verse 11, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So notice there's a negative and a positive here. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. What's that mean? Well, don't, uh, don't follow suit with the passions of the flesh. Abstain from those things. So there's, there's things we don't do. But he also says that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. It's all about bringing God the glory, which is actually, our good comes from acknowledging God's glory. It's not because God's an egotistical God and He just glorify me. You know, when Jesus is born, remember that statement made to the shepherds? Behold, peace on earth, shalom on earth, which is thriving for humans, glory to God in the highest. Both of those are combined in Jesus. So God's glory is what we're after, but that also results in our good. Okay, I want to share with you this quote from uh, Christopher J.H. Wright in a little book called The Mission of God's People that Jake and I used, along with several other things, uh, uh, by this missiologist. He's a person who, in an academic setting, studies the idea of the mission, the theology of mission, running from Israel all the way through the New Testament. He says this, and I think it's good, a, a, a good um, advice for us to follow. We, need, we have tended, he says, to separate believing the gospel from living out the gospel. We seem to think that there can be a belief of faith separate from the life of faith. The bad result of breaking up this whole is that all over the world there are people who call themselves believers, 
I hope we hear ourselves in this, not them, but us. All over the world, people call themselves believers whose actual lives are indistinguishable from the culture around them, whether in terms of moral standards, social and political prejudices. I hate people just like my neighbor does. I hate all the right people. Isn't that Christian? You know, we don't look any different in the world in that way. And actual behavior. But we go to church and say, I'm a Christian, I'm into the mission of God, I'm sent. No. The gospel is good news that needs to be heard and to be seen. It needs words and deeds, message and proof. We have tended to separate these and to prioritize the first. We speak most easily of mission as preaching the gospel. It's things we say, right? Here's a tract. Here's a Bible study. Let me tell you some information. But though that is absolutely vital, for good news simply has to be communicated with words, it is not the whole biblical picture of how the gospel is communicated. Certainly not what we're looking at in these texts today, where we're told basically to be a certain way, be a certain thing, present in the world around you, and have deeds that, that preach. Presence and practice preaches. Numerous U.S. presidents have invoked the words of Jesus in Matthew 5.14. I remember Ronald Reagan said this all the time, but I, I, I saw a list one time. It was like 9 or 10 or something like that, U.S. presidents in history. Actually, there's a famous Puritan um, speech on board a ship called the Arbella um, that I, I used to assign early American history students that they, is spoken, I think, on but before they actually get off the ship to form uh, the the uh, Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1620, where he says, we're going to be a city, these people from East Anglia, you know, in the UK, are going to be a city on a hill. Three or four years later, they slaughter several Native American tribes. Okay. <laughs> Let your good works, it's, it's, you know, a lot of people have claimed this. Let me say that one thing that goes wrong is when you start claiming this for a nation state, a colony of, the, of, of, the, of Great Britain was never going to be the city set on a hill. Sorry. Uh, America is not a city set on a hill in the sense that Jesus is talking about. I want America to be as great as it could possibly be, and the more our people have the, 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 the teachings and practice of Jesus, the better. But I'd say that about any nation. He's not talking about that here in the Sermon on the Mount, is he? He's talking to his disciples. They're the holy nation. They're the royal priesthood. Whatever race or nation they come from on earth. He's referring to his disciples. He's referring to us, the church. To our responsibility of embodying his gospel. Being his gospel. Living in a way that reflects the light of his father's glory into the darkness of a world that needs him so. That's not the only way to preach the gospel. We'll talk about all kinds of ways, you know, in the coming year, Lord willing. But it's one of the most powerful ways to preach it. And I, I know people who, who would say, I'm sure we have people in this congregation, like, hey, it's not my forte. I'm not, I'm not wired temperamentally to be a person who goes out and talks to a lot of people all the time. You know, sets up studies and, 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 and just, I don't have that gift of gab or whatever. I'm more um, to myself. That's fine. Some people have that gift and can use it. It's one body, many members. But I want to tell you something. There are a few things more powerful than practicing the ways of Jesus in public. 
You got you to come out of your house every now and then. Who know, if you're under a bushel, the light's not shining. But if you're just present, and we all are, we are in the world. You're in jobs, you shop, you, you do recreation, you have neighbors, you have conversations, you have relatives, you have friends, classmates. If we just live the life among the people of the world, the nations will see something different. It's one of the most powerful ways to preach. But we won't do that if we withdraw from the world. And we won't do that if we become like the world. To be God's representatives, His priests in this world, we've got to be present to it, and we've got to practice His ways before it. Thank you for your attention today.